politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and scorned and forgotten Americans to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for Thursday, March 4th. And there is so much to talk about and so little time. Where do be, where do we even begin? You know what's funny? I spent two years talking about the border crisis, 2018-2019. More of our longstanding listeners remember it. We covered it from every aspect. The cartels, the drugs, the smuggling, the crime, the gangs, the bailouts at the border, the effects on the um, border towns, the logistics of how they crossed, um, the national security threats. We, We discussed it all. And... You know, you would think I'd be all over this border crisis that the media is not reporting on. And in some ways, it's getting worse than it was in 2018, 2019. And we have no backstop. But it's been so bad in America with the tyranny that I, I haven't had time. But I want to get to it a little bit today. And again, when you look at this dystopian reality of America... How this lawlessness at our border, this orchestration of a criminal smuggling conspiracy that the Department of Homeland Security is engaging in, while, by the way, saying we are the terrorists for questioning COVID, it's coming at the backdrop of the strongest power play by the American government against its people than ever before. I mean, so typically you would think, you know, it would come at a very laissez-faire time where the government is very weak and very just hands-off. So, you know, there's invaders too. But no, government is not weak. It's very strong. It's orchestrated. The same way they are engaging in strong actions taken against our liberties, they are engaging in strong actions taken to orchestrate an invasion of our border. It's not out of weakness. They're doing it on purpose. DHS literally said that they expect 117,000 children, a.k.a. young males mainly, to flood our border in the coming months, which is obviously lowballing it. That tops the 80,000 UACs we've had during 2019. And they're openly saying it. They are violating every clause of immigration law. And no problem. I want to talk a little bit about what's going on, but more importantly, where we need to head with our state project, the two-state solution, the red states, what to do about it. But I first want to begin with masks and come back to the border, and then at the end, we'll come back to masks again. And tomorrow, we're going to have a special top industrial hygienist on the show, Stephen Petty, to talk about masks. But... You'll, you'll see how it connects. It's all going to connect. Now, again, as I've said before, masks really are the most important issue of our time. It's the symbol of tyranny. It's the symbol of submission, of shutting up, obeying government, covering your mouth. A Marxist advocacy group, the UK Science Advisory Group for Emergencies, and a Communist Party member, Susan Michie. This is in the UK Guardian. She said that school children wearing masks in school, quote, 
make their families more likely to accept masks. Okay, so now you know where this is coming from and where it's headed. This is a communist agenda. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about the dominoes falling, uh, positive momentum against the mask mandate, and it's true. So you had Texas, you had Mississippi, Yesterday, you there's you know Alabama and Arkansas look like within the next few weeks, and hopefully we'll have more. But as I've noted, and I, I gave a number of reasons on yesterday's show, if you haven't listened to it yet, make sure you catch Wednesday's show, why we still have to fight in state legislatures. Because the rot and the cancer that this has created is so deep, it's not going to go away. And, and the reason is this. When a governor declares, boom, you have to wear a mask, dominoes fall. Everyone, even the most conservative county, school district, everyone's doing it. Because there's only one dominant strong force. But what if they say, okay, the mask mandate's gone, even on localities? Do you think they're all going to give up so quickly? I got an email from a listener in Texas, north of Dallas, warning me that the superintendent of their school district was saying they're waiting and seeing. They are not getting rid of it right away. They're dragging their feet. And I suspect that this is going to happen all over the state and all over the country. And the lesson is so important. You are governed most immediately, most directly by... The form of government that's directly above you, closest to you. The reality is whoever controls what happens on the ground is closest to you. And what's amazing is how the left, you could have the governor himself take off a mandate and a big speech and everything. But if they have control over the superintendent's office of that school district... They'll fight you. The left uses any and every lever of power to fight for what they believe in. Localism. Again, notice what I do is I always use the left and I copy it because they're very successful. That's what we need to do and that gets me back to the border. We're going to have to fight this at a state and local level. Now, I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm, I'm struggling with this a little bit because it is tough. What do you do when your own federal government violates the basic underpinnings of Article 4, Section 4, guaranteeing them you know, safety from an invasion, violates every immigration law openly, purposefully? What do you do as a state? This is a very tough thing. It's tougher than some of the other issues we're talking about that affect more domestic affairs. But I want to make this point, and I'm going to make it over and over again. We cannot be bound by constraints that are designed to achieve the opposite result when the other side is violating them by a a factor of 100, and that's our only choice. So in other words, oh, Daniel, well, you can't deport illegals from a county or from a state, or do certain things with immigration, that's federal. Yeah, 
But what if the federal government is violating federal law? The most foundational sovereignty laws. What if the federal government at a time of a pandemic when they are using the same pandemic to shut down Americans, they disperse, what was it yesterday? Over 100 illegals who tested positive for coronavirus. Let them go. What do you do with a government like that? And the answer is, you can't have a ball game when one side's like, hey, the inning ends as soon as I get 10 runs. Even if that means I got 50 outs in the process, I'll blow right through them. You, when you get up to bat after my 10 runs, you still have your three outs. It doesn't work that way. That's my point. The left fights back even like, hey, I'm doing this anyway. We're doing the mask anyway. And, and, and watch for them to continue that. We are going to have to say, in our areas, we are going to ban illegal aliens from school, from, from jobs. Oh, Daniel, the federal courts. What do you mean the federal courts? The federal executive branch violating federal immigration law. So states should be bound to a made-up Plyler v. Doe, which in itself violates the Constitution? No way. No way. So I want to talk a little bit about that. But also what's going on at the border. You now have high-speed chases called bailouts happening like 100 miles at least into our interior. You now have roads that were built as access roads by CBP to construct the border wall, but the border wall was stopped in middle of where they have the roads. So now, like, you'll have an open area, and the cartels are now using the access roads, which would have been covered up by the wall, but now that the wall is incomplete, it's worse than it was before because you don't have the wall, but you do have the access roads. So they're basically roads built for the cartels. This is what's going on. I'm going to read to you a letter sent to me by Don McLaughlin. He's the mayor of Uvalde, Texas. What is that, about 60 miles from the border, maybe? North of Del Rio, central, south central Texas. He was on my show back during the crisis, and then Fox picked him up for my show. He was on Tucker at the time, I think two years ago, two, two and a half years ago. And he sent the following to me. Illegal immigrants from 59 different countries have crossed the border illegally in our area, which is called the Del Rio Sector. These illegal immigrants are from China, South America, Venezuela, Cuba, and the Middle East, and Africa, just to name a few. Think of that during the time of the pandemic. In our city and county, we are averaging six to eight car chases a week. These human smugglers have no regard for human life. They have led our officers on chases through our town at high speeds, exceeding 100 miles an hour. In two instances, our local law enforcement officers have been shot at. It's not unusual to find weapons in these cars now when they are caught. In Kinney County, which borders us, the chases are exceeding 20 a week. In these chases, they are finding illegal immigrants that have previously been deported and have criminal records for sexual assault, murder, and drug trafficking. Meaning, what's very important about that is illegal immigrants are coming, you know, just openly through the front door, 
because Biden's inviting them, obviously. But why might you want to do this through the back door? Well, that's if you have a really bad criminal record. Not that they might get deported, but I guess they, they, they might feel there's a risk that ICE will catch up with them. So that's why they would want to go on the high-speed chases to try to get in through the gaps. Think about that. We call that an invasion. Before I go on, I just want to introduce you to today's sponsor, very special sponsor, very apropos for the times we live in, Start Mail. Well, we've all learned, folks, and I've learned the hard way, too. Free email services like Gmail and Yahoo aren't really free. No, you don't pay for it with your money. You pay for it with your privacy. Especially if you're into organizing for liberty, you will be scrutinized and it will go to government. They have access to every email you send and receive. And they could sell your data to the highest bidder. And that's the thing. I mean, it could be medical records. It could be social security numbers. This is something I used to not be so worried about, but I think we all are now. I mean, believe me, from what we're seeing with the surveillance of government, you got to be worried about it. That's why I trust StartMail to secure my email. I'm going to send you guys my Start email when I get it up. I'm still just uh, working on that today. But Start email keeps my email private, period. Every email is encrypted. Um, Even if, by the way, the recipient doesn't use encryption. So they can never get a hold of your stuff. Big Brother can't snoop around on your email. Start, start mail prevents government agencies from spying on you, like in a dragnet operation. With start mail, deleted means deleted. When you delete an email, it is gone forever. They use their own servers, not Amazon's, so they're not going to be out of business. They have the most stringent privacy laws in the world. They can gen- start mail could also generate a shareable Elias email. So people can't sell your information, and they could be deleted at any time. So, folks, I am using Startmail, and I'm going to send that to you, okay? It's time to ditch SpyMail and switch to Startmail. I don't trust big tech. I don't trust big government. Neither should you. Start securing your email privacy with Startmail. Sign up today with with your 50% off coupon for your first year by going to startmail.com slash conservative. That's startmail with a T, S-T-A-R-T mail, dot com slash conservative for 50% off your first year. Startmail.com forward slash conservative. And I'll send you later my personal startmail email. Now going back to this letter from the Uvalde, Texas mayor, when I was on call the other day with our border patrol, I asked what the protocol for COVID testing was for immigrants and was told there is not one other than a temperature check and asking how they feel. The lack of any testing not only puts our border patrolmen at risk, but also our communities. As these officers live in our communities and risk catching COVID and other diseases and bringing it home to their families and also citizens as most of their wives and kids work and go to school in our communities. Where there is testing going on in the Rio Grande Valley, 
So that's farther southeast. The positive rate is better than 40% in these illegal immigrants. They are turning these illegal immigrants over to non-governmental agencies to get them into quarantine in hotels. When the NGOs go back to check on these illegal immigrants, they have left to continue their travels, even though they have tested positive. When an illegal immigrant is sick and has to be seen and taken to our ERs, they are immediately seen at the hospital, even though our citizens are made to wait while, while they have to be seen. In the past three days, 1,600 illegal immigrants have been caught. Two of those were sexual predators. Since October 27th, sexual predators and two murderers have been caught illegally crossing the border. In Uvalde, we have a, det- a detention center for unaccompanied minors that is at capacity. And as I write this, more are still coming. Most people have no clue what is going on along our border. The media is very selective in what they report that doesn't fit their narrative. Perfect example is San Antonio, Texas, where both the mayor and county judge and local news agencies have been told that illegal immigrants are coming through San Antonio, getting on buses and departing for all, all parts of the U.S., thus continuing the spread of COVID throughout the country. We as a country act as though we are helping these immigrants as we release them in our country awaiting a hearing, which 98% never show up to. We talk about slave labor and sex trafficking. These illegal immigrants end up working day jobs where they are picked up in neighborhood street corners where they stand around waiting for work, are paid subpar wages, and if hurt, are dropped off back without getting taken care of. Women are forced into the sex trade to survive. We're not helping these people or our country. We're setting them and ourselves up for failure. So that's just an eyewitness mayor, pretty close to the border, not quite on the border, but it's reverberating throughout the entire state. And again, it's reverberating everywhere. When you see an estimate, I, I want you guys to understand, when the government up front is telling you 117,000 teenage Central Americans, some of them Mexican, mainly Central Americans, coming in, do you understand what that means in terms of gang recruitment? Have you ever thought about that for a moment? MS-13 was almost extinguished years ago. And it was rejuvenated with the 2014 surge of Central American teens. And then certainly with 2018-2019, it's a circuitous cycle of drug trafficking, gang activity, criminality, and border crossing. It's literally a criminal conspiracy to reunite illegal aliens you know, often they came here to work and then they pay a cart, uh, a smuggler to bring over through the orchestration of the cartels that control the various swaths of the, the Mexico-Texas border to come over and have their teenagers come, come here. That's why a Senate Homeland Security report found two years ago that 90% of those that had sponsors, you know, in other words, the sponsors that, that take them off the hands of HHS, ORR, from the holding facilities and they get resettled in our country, they themselves are here illegally because it's nothing but families paying to traffic themselves. And as I've noted time and again, for those of you who have listened to this show, 
the statute governing UAC's unaccompanied alien children that require them to be treated more like refugees rather than illegal aliens was only meant for people that were victims of a severe form of trafficking, not those who paid to self-traffic. So remember, UACs are treated like refugees. It's refugee resettlement. States need to say no. This is going to be one of our big action items to say, no, we are not having dumping in our state. And that doesn't just mean the refugees that are brought in more through the legal channels like from Africa and the Middle East and whatever. It means the UACs from Central America crossing the border as well. So that's one thing that needs to be done. Also, and this needs to happen anyway in terms of domestic law, we need to have very tough new statutes pushed in legislatures, anti-gang laws. Now, again, it's the, the transnational gangs, illegal alien gangs aren't the only gangs in America. There's plenty of domestic ones, black, white, whatever, um, that are causing problems, and we need tough laws to deter all of them. That's where most of the crime in the country comes from. Certainly most of the murder. But doing this is a way to take a bite out of illegal immigration because this is, this is going to be the big question. How do you deport illegals, including the most violent criminal ones, if the federal government refuses to do it and is in fact importing them? It's a very tough thing for a state to do. A state could do a lot of things. And, and again, I'm not talking about legally because legally I don't think we should constrain ourselves. I think they have every right to do whatever they can. But logistically, it's going to be very tough. I think ultimately what needs to happen is a two-state solution, some sort of interstate red state compact where we just say, look, any illegals, we will work together. We'll raise funds together and, and, and pay for our own deportation force and deport them not to Mexico, but deport them to the blue states. And you guys are the ones who want them, so go have them. But until then, I think what needs one of the things we need to do is a tough anti-gang law, and that's just going to lock them up. We're just going to lock them up. Now, again, ideally, we don't want to spend the money locking up other countries' criminals when we have enough of our own. We need to just deter them and deport them and get them out of here. But if that's not an option, I'd rather that pay for money for them to be in state and local jails than for them to be on the streets. So that's another way that's going to get them. Because remember, what any prosecutor who has dealt with gangs will tell you is that gangs are the most violent when you have new initiations, when you have a bunch of young people coming here without a purpose, without a sense of connection, and they join gangs and they need to show their moxie. They need to show that they have what it takes to be in the gang. It's like a drag racing competition of how to outdo each other and being more gruesome and more violent. And that's why it's getting worse and worse. And then look, the border, the border areas, the border states need to secure their own border. Arizona DPS, certainly Texas DPS, which has more resources. I mean, New Mexico and California are lost for now. They're not going to do it. But we need to work in the legislatures there to push for robust border security. I mean, you just had in California. Border Patrol say 13 people were killed in a California crash. Or among 44 people entered the U.S. through a hole cut in the border fence with Mexico. It's an AP article. So, there's a lot going on here, folks. 
There's a lot going on on the border I want to cover in the coming days. But I do want to say philosophically, this is very important, that a state has the right to protect itself if the government is not only, federal government is not only failing to protect it, but is actually orchestrating the invasion. Justice Antonin Scalia actually made this point when he asked Obama's Solicitor General during arguments in Arizona v. U.S. This is back in 2012 when Arizona had its own bill, which basically just echoed federal law. But I think, you know, now given what's going on, we need something even stronger than that. He asked, what does sovereignty mean if it does not include the ability to defend your borders? And he was referring to the state, not the feds. The Constitution recognized there is, that there is such a thing as state borders, and the states can police their borders even to the point of inspecting incoming shipments to exclude the diseased material. And again, like this is certainly very apropos now um, in the times we're living in, right? Because there, there's a double thing. They can't have it both ways. If the Texas governor, and I didn't agree with it, was able to put a travel ban on Louisiana, then sure as heck could put a travel ban on Mexico and foreign nationals. So that needs to happen. Scalia talked about this when you know the case came out and he wrote his partial dissent after John Roberts screwed us in that case, quote, but there has come to pass and is with us today the specter that Arizona and the states that support it predicted. A federal government that does not want to enforce the immigration laws as written and leaves the state's borders unprotected against immigrants whom those laws would exclude. So the issue is a stark one. Are the sovereign states at the mercy of the federal executive's refusal to enforce the national immigration laws? Scalia rhetorically asked, quote, Now, imagine a provision perhaps inserted right after Article 1, Section 8, Clause 4, the Naturalization Clause, which included among the enumerated powers of Congress to establish limitations upon immigration that will be exclusive and that will be enforced only to the extent the president deems appropriate. The delegates to the Grand Convention would have rushed to the exits. And he ended his dissent noting, as is often the case, discussion of the dry legalities that are the proper object of our attention suppress the very human realities that gave rise to the suit. Arizona bears the brunt of the country's illegal immigration problem. Now I would, it's, Texas is even worse, but its citizens feel themselves under siege by large numbers of legal immigrants who invade their property, strain their social services, and even place their lives in jeopardy. Federal officials have been unable to remedy the problem and indeed have recently shown that they are unwilling to do so. Thousands of Arizona's estimated 400,000 illegal immigrants, including not just children, but men and women, are under, under 30, are now assured immunity from enforcement and will be able to compete openly with Arizona citizens for employment. Scalia concluded, quote, If securing its territory in this fashion is not within the power of Arizona, we should cease referring to it as a sovereign state. And folks, as I've noted all along, the, the Constitution is not a suicide pact for the states. Okay? As Americans are treated like criminals and criminal aliens are treated like first-class citizens, 
If courts were able to rule in favor of states abrogating and criminalizing the enforcement of immigration law under Trump, then we as sure as heck could enforce those laws while Biden is seeking to unilaterally nullify them. Scalia famously said in that same case, the naturalization power was given to Congress not to abrogate states' power to exclude those they didn't want, but to vindicate it. In other words, it was meant to be a layer on top. It was to prevent states from being looser, but not from being tougher. It's the lowest common denominator of both sovereignties. So a federal government has to protect the federal sovereignty, but then you have the state sovereignty. So a state can't, doesn't have the right to invite them because that violates the federal sovereignty. Now, what if the federal government doesn't care about its own sovereignty and wants to orchestrate the invasion? Certainly states have the right to protect their own sovereignty, the ones that want to. That is the story. Let me go. I've gone. I've gone over this this before, but we have a lot of new listeners. It's worth noting again, just to to punctuate Scalia's point, that our founders assigned control over immigration policy to the federal government was to be more strict, not less strict than the states. Justice Joseph Story, when he commented on. The naturalization clause, he said, if aliens might be admitted indiscriminately to enjoy all the rights of citizens at the will of a single state, the union might itself be endangered by an influx of foreigners hostile to its institutions, ignorant of its powers, and incapable of the due estimate of its privileges. And it was talking about a state, but if the federal government is like that, certainly a state could could enforce. Roger Sherman, one of the greatest of all the founders, he signed all the major documents, you know, the Articles of Confederation, the Declaration, the Constitution. Um, one of our greatest legal thinkers um, who uh, really shaped Article 3 of the Constitution. Definitely going to be in the, your, your top five founders intellectually. So he was a member of Congress, and during the 1790, uh, the, the congressional proceedings on the Naturalization Act of 1790, he said it was intended by the convention who framed the Constitution that Congress should have the power of naturalization in order to prevent particular states receiving citizens and forcing them upon others who would not have received them in any other manner. Meaning, again, to prevent, nowadays, California from screwing Texas. But the notion that the federal government could screw Texas is, is not true. James Madison, in, in, a, in a 1782 letter to Edmund Randolph, he was explaining the defects that they noticed in the Articles of Confederation, and he said it allowed for the intrusion of obnoxious aliens through other states, right, by not allowing a uniform rule of naturalization. Writing in Federalist 42, Madison elaborated that the federalized power of naturalization solved, quote, a very serious embarrassment, unquote, and, quote, de a defect, unquote, of the Articles of Confederation, whereby, quote, certain descriptions of aliens who had rendered themselves obnoxious, unquote, can force themselves in several states had they, uh, quote, acquired the character of citizens under the laws of other states. So what this means is that both the Constitution and the inherent right to sovereignty rooted in the social compact theory, it dictates to us that federal control over immigration should primarily be in one direction, more restrictive than the states would want, not less restrictive. As Scalia said, 
A state has the sovereign power to protect its borders more rigorously if it wishes, absent any valid federal prohibition. And in this case, Arizona is entitled to have its own immigration policy, including a more rigorous enforcement policy, so long as it doesn't conflict with federal law. And it doesn't. In fact, now, I would argue, I mean, there's a lot we can do to go up to that line. I would argue we've reached a point that I think we need to go over that line and have states deport. Because, again, what do you do when you have a complete collapse like that? Oh, Daniel, it's, it's, it's against the law. Wait, wait, so you mean to tell me he could violate 100 sections of the INA and there's no problem with that? That's the story. There's an interesting observation I had. If you look at Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, this is what's called the Compact Clause. So no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops, or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power, or engage in war. Okay, these are all, I mean, that's why we have a federal union, right? But there's a clause at the end of that, a phrase at the end of that. Unless, unless there's a qualification, unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. And that's the point. If the federal government turns against its own states and invades it, so then you have the right to have a compact with other states and you know start conducting your own foreign policy and your own war and your own whatever, or certainly deportation, if that's what it takes. Justice Joseph's story, in his commentary, I looked it up on the compact clause. I wanted to see what he had to say. And he writes that while the prohibition on states making war is obviously necessary, right? You can't have each state declaring its own war. It was, quote, wisely guarded by exceptions sufficient for the safety of the states and not justly open to the objection of being dangerous to the union. Still, a state may be so situated that it may become indispensable to possess military forces to resist Resist an expected invasion or insurrection. The danger may be too imminent for delay, and under such circumstances, a state will have a right to raise troops for its own safety, even without the consent of Congress. And again, this is what we need to discuss with Texas and Arizona governments. This needs to happen. If you look at the original language of Article 4's Guarantee Clause, that's to protect states from from an invasion, Madison originally drafted the language to be read as protecting against foreign violence. Very important. The original language actually said foreign violence. So it's clear that this was not necessarily referring to a formal warfare with a nation state like oh, Daniel, well, you could only do that, Texas could only do that if Mexico has an army like Santa Ana and they come formally and invade and the federal government doesn't do anything so Texas could do something. But come on, Daniel, it's just illegal immigrants. No, I mean, it's foreign violence. Because remember, they were referring to incursions from Indian tribes. That's really what they were referring to at that time. So this is very similar in that respect. You know, random, you know, random roves, roving um groups of smugglers and cartels and you know criminal alien networks and and gangs and and that is their job so this is something we need to do at a systemic level in texas and arizona and on the interior in other states we have to reject refugee resettlement that's that's very clean and just start enforcing no work no school no nothing tell the courts to go to hell 
It's it, it has to happen at some point. The other side doesn't get to violate sovereignty. And then when we get the fallout, oh, you're a state, you can't enforce it. No, no, no. I'm not playing that game anymore. Now, some of this stuff, you got to walk before you run. It's going to take time. But fundamentally, this is where we need to head as a people. Now, folks, there is a lot more on the border issue. Like I said, I got a lot of calls in from some of our Rolodex of sheriffs that we've had on the show over the years from Arizona and Texas, um, my contacts at the feds, although that is dwindling, obviously, under this administration. So we're going to keep you updated and informed on that. But I want to transition back to the mask issue. And again, it's the same point that we have a government that does what it is not supposed to do and what it is supposed to do, the core jobs, and not only doesn't do, but it orchestrates the invasion against our border. This is a degree of a breach in the social compact that even our founders could never have imagined. It dwarfs what happened in the revolution. And in fact, they were ticked off and had a Boston Tea Party moment for much less than what we have today. And I was always wondering, when is that moment going to happen? Now, we're slowly seeing more bills introduced. By the way, West Virginia now has a bill to get rid of the local mask mandates. We have to be very careful to make sure the governors or legislatures don't forget that. The local ones, because those are the ones that are really um, going after the kids in school. The school boards are part of local government. So it's HB 2869 for those of you in West Virginia to call your legislatures, show support for HB 2869. There's a couple of these going on. There's good news in Nevada as well. There's this compact of uh, six rural counties that are basically declaring a COVID sanctuary, which is what I've called for to move beyond just the Second Amendment sanctuary. So there's some good movement there. But I've been wondering for a while, why is there no wholesale, full-scale, Boston Tea Party style rebellion against the masks. It is insane. It's inhuman, inhumane. It's illogical. It's just the most insane thing. And everyone's looking around like, am I the only one who thinks this is just the craziest thing we've ever done? I mean, what's next? Are we going to go on to the Chinese anal swabs and no one's going to say anything about that either? So what caught my eye, a couple of people I know in Idaho told me there is a rebellion brewing. And there's a movement, Free Idaho. It's a hashtag. You can go to freeidaho.org. Tomorrow, March 6th, they're holding mask-burning events about 60 different places throughout this very large state. And I wanted to find out a little bit more about that and what we can do to replicate in other states because this is an important state. If Idaho cannot be a beacon of freedom then we're done. I mean, this is where a lot of people are coming there from California to escape tyranny. And frankly, I'm shocked how a lot of this has been able to get off the ground there and persist for a year. But finally, it's unraveling there. And I think this is something we could learn from. So with us today is Dar Moon, who is helping to organize this free Idaho um movement. Again, freeidaho.org. He has a Facebook page, Idaho on Fire. Um, if you want to get in touch with him, really talking about a lot of land issues, a very important issue of federal land use, federal control over Western states. This is something we're going to have to really push 
with a lot of our state strike force teams as we get them set up for activism. He lives out nowhere in Custer County, Idaho, God's country, and he is going to update us on this really exciting event. Dar, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Daniel, for having me. I'm very pleased to be on your show and to let people uh, around America know that Idaho is is tired. We're fed up with this mask mandate, um, and uh, we uh, we're gonna we're gonna have a mask burning event uh, on Saturday, and so um, it is symbolic of the the move that government has made over the people to take complete control. And it's time we take our lives back. It's time that healthy people go to work, sustain our economy, uh, and we need to get back together again as people. Um, enjoy each other's company and our presence and not be divided. And unfortunately, government is, has been playing us for way too long. And so um, we're burning masks and mandates and the governor's executive order that has locked people down determined that some of us are essential and some of us are not. And so I would hope that other states would join us. And um, I thank you for uh, giving us some airtime. So perfect. Yeah, I did want to get into the mechanics of what you've done. And again, I uh, made a mistake there. It is Saturday March 6th, not Friday, it was Saturday, so you got got an extra day there. If you are in the area, we got a lot of good Idaho patriots or people maybe close to some other, um, some of those venues you could see on the website if you live in Utah or Oregon, some other states that are close by. Um, here's my question, and, and I think this is the big thing a lot of people are asking me. It's kind of like the hijacking dynamic on an airplane where you have three terrorists and you got 50, let's say, other people, and you could totally overrun them. But each guy, you know, no, everyone's too scared to jump out ahead of each other and they don't want to be the guy mowed down. And I kind of feel that way with the masks, that each person thinks everyone else wants it and they don't want to be shamed because the degree of shame that has been imbued in this um, ritual is just, it's biblical. And everyone seems to be too scared to get something like this off the ground. How did this come about? And how broad is the support? Well, it, it came about because my wife is a state legislator, and we've been touring our district and have been invited to other uh, locations outside of uh, her district to speak. And the number one concern about people is our loss of freedom. And it's getting worse, not better. And it is controlled by a government that's out of control, even in our red Republican state. And, and people have, um, have pushed this idea. So this is a grassroots movement. It is several organizations across the state that are putting on these events. It's not just one organization or one individual. Um, and I think that's important. Because people hunger for the truth. They hunger again to be free. And we know that our government no longer works for us. They're not protecting our civil liberties or our property rights. And the time has come for that to end. And symbolically, burning the mask is that line in the sand. And so um, this is a mass populist uprising. And it's a showing 
that government is out of control. Here we are halfway through our legislative session, actually over half, and nothing has come to fruition to uh, end the mandates, end the executive order, and, and such. And we're just not sure government is going to be responsive to the people. So there is a time when people have to make a stand, and that's what this is really all about. So, you know, I've been talking about this a lot on the show, these Republican supermajorities. There's about 19 states where Republicans have supermajorities. Um, in the state of Idaho, you're talking about, you know, four to one majorities or three to one in one house, four to one in the other, very large majorities there. Your wife, as you mentioned, she's Dorothy Moon, um, the representative from that large territory there in the dead center of the state. Um, very rural. Again, I mean, this is what I can't figure out. Where I am in central Maryland, so I understand, full of the Karens, people that are just brainwashed into the government sewer pipe. You go out to your part of the country, just the topography, the geography, the culture itself really imbues in people a sense of rugged individualism. Um, Idaho is known as a very pro-liberty state. How in the world has this gone on for a year? And they're, you know, they don't have a statewide mass mandate, but they have a lot of localities that have it. A lot of the businesses have complied. A lot of the people have complied. Um, they certainly have the the test and trace and the quarantine and the kids and all that stuff. How did this get off the ground and why are things changing? Well, you know, it, it all began with fear. And in the beginning, I think people were truly concerned, and there, there was need to be concerned. But these kinds of incidents are always great opportunities for government to get involved. And they got involved, and they got involved more than they should have gotten involved. And they have stifled our freedoms. And people in Idaho are rugged individualists, and we cherish our freedoms. And it's gone on so long now that, you know, we have been, um, we are, we feel like we have Republican representation. And so we try to be good citizens, but there, our government isn't being good back to us. And, and the time is, is long overdue that we uh, redress our government. And, um, Unfortunately, in Idaho, we are one of the reddest of the red states, but we have a blue management team, it, it feels like. And, and that's what we're calling out. We send a lot of good people to Boise to represent us from all over the state, and they're stifled by the system. The structural integrity of the system has created an oligarchy rather than a republic. And, um, you know, the civics that we learned in school isn't what is operated in state government or federal government. And nowhere can we go to seek, uh, it seems, the truth. Um, we can't um, fend for our own liberties anymore. Uh, government has sucked us up into this great vacuum of fear and people in Idaho aren't fearful. I mean, there really is a virus, but healthy-bodied people have to go back to work. Government shouldn't decide who 
whose business goes and whose business goes bankrupt. And um, Idahoans, I hope, uh, are first to draw that line in the sand. I know the state of Texas has uh, lifted the, the mandates. Uh, we want to do that also, but we want to drill down even farther and begin reforming our Republican form of government. Exactly. And as I talk about a lot on the show, that begins with some structural reforms we need to put in place to rebalance the power um, more towards the legislature, um, back from the executive where it is today, where you have a legislature with a tiny staff and very little knowledge, and they feel like they're overrun, and, and, a, and a large, large executive branch that controls everything. So either they're outgunned, outmanned, or then they or they just get co-opted. And then people like your wife are really in the minority. There there is a group, and I know, you know, 10, 15, maybe 10, 15 or so good House members. Um, but there's, you know, it's not even maybe half the Republicans. And then you go to the Senate, it's even worse. <laughs> and that's the thing. There's some good bills passed the House, not the Senate. This is a theme we're seeing many places. Um, are you seeing on the ground more people taking the mask off? Oh, yes. Yes, people in rural Idaho have have dropped the mask a long time ago. Um, there's a lot of fear in Boise. I was shocked, actually, to go to Boise and see so many people uh, with masks running about, children, all kinds of people, and people living in fear because we weren't wearing a mask. I mean, went to a Walmart, and there's 200 people there, and there's... Dorothy and myself walking around and, you know, um, it causes a separation anxiety that I'm afraid is, is changing our social habits. Um, and it's, it's part of the design, I believe, to separate people from one another, uh, to separate people from standing up and saying, wait a minute, stop. Um, so, you know, there are so many things wrong with this that are changing um, life to a different normal. And this is terribly devastating for our children um, and their future of what uh, the American idealism is, that we are the land of the free and the brave. And to see so many people cowering to government um, is upsetting and disturbing. And I think that... Uh, most people in Idaho feel uh, the way I do. Uh, certainly, the rural populations do. Um, we're we're ready to go uh, make our lives as full of uh, happiness as possible, and we just need our government, the executive powers in our government, to be checked, checked by our people's representatives, and um, and move along and enjoy life and uh, become proud, brave Americans. So I, I think, you know, what you're saying is is something that could be replicated in every state. You start in the rural areas, and that's what I always say. If we don't even have the red areas acting red, certainly it's not going to spread elsewhere. So the people that do claim to stand for liberty need to do so in a bold way. Um, a mass-burning Boston Tea Party type of event is really, I think, what the doctor has ordered. Um, burning the orders in effigy, kind of you know, harking back to 
you know, 1795 in that era. The first time I think we did that in history, burning the Jay Treaty when the Jeffersonians started burning burning Jay in effigy too, as well as his treaty. Um, certainly has a lot of history in our country. And I wish you luck with that. You'll report back to us on the success of that. One quick thing, and I know this is not really quick and really, really requires an entire show. You're like you're you're an average Joe, small business owner living out in the most remote parts of Idaho, and you deal with this issue again. You have a, a Facebook page, Idaho on Fire, and I want to broach this issue just for a few minutes with you, with the intent of getting into it in, in more, greater depth later on um, and taking this on as one of our pet peeve issues. But anyone who looks at a map of the United States um, of federal control, you'll f- notice in the West, you look at states like Nevada, Utah, Idaho, uh, Arizona, the majority of the land is owned by the federal government. Could you just give a brief synopsis as someone who's living that, has lived it your entire life, what that means socially, culturally, and economically for people like you? Well, there was a time when the federal government, the Forest Service, and the BLM were on the people's side. They were there to help sustain a healthy economy. Uh, this is, uh, and through forestry, we had logging, we had mining, we had ranching. And then things changed about 50 years ago, and the federal government became uh, against most of the operations uh, in our small uh, communities, rural communities. So um, the loggers were kind of the first to go, and then the miners, and now there's huge attacks against the ranchers in our area. Well, the federal government owns about two-thirds of Idaho, or essentially it's their territory and they manage the resource base, which in Idaho in particular is extremely rich uh, with rare minerals and metals that will be needed for the future um, technologies that are coming, rare earths, cobalt, uh, thorium, and such. So living in rural outback Idaho, um, we have to deal with the federal government on many levels. And unfortunately for us, people in Alabama seem to have more right than we do in the land because we only have two representatives in Congress and two senators. And most other states have meant much more. And we are under the thumb of environmental groups who claim to be uh, protectors of the environment. But since um, my childhood, I grew up, we never had fires, uh, occasional small fire. But of late, we scorched the earth with hundreds of thousands of acres of forest fires. We don't have a timber management program anymore. That's gone. The mines that supplied uh, great jobs, high-paying, high-tech jobs, are gone. And so even though Idaho has experienced a boom in population from uh, all all sorts of states that uh, people are running from government tyranny, in our area, we're losing population. And we're losing population because government is making it impossible for people to live there. So the young ranching family uh, that are going to take over dad's ranch 
have to look carefully. You know, what's in it for me? I can't possibly make a living anymore. And so they're slowly going away. Uh, we don't have sawmills in our area anymore. They've shut the timbering down. And, uh, you know, to be on our knees for everything uh, in the resource base to China, when Idaho has massive amounts of metal, metals and, and mineral that could um, help our uh, nation's economy, our nation's security, it's just kind of unfathomable. And most people really don't realize that total implication. But uh, I'll, I'll have to, I'd love to be on another show to talk about it more in depth. Th- that was a very profound five minutes there because what, what you're basically describing in totality is the government emasculating America in its most physical sense, the people, the land, um, denuding us of our own self-sufficiency, and then purposefully making us dependent on China, kind of... Um, metaphorically embodied in that anal swabbing and the Chinese face percos, and it all comes back together. We are all subjects of a government that doesn't care about its own land, its own people, its own future, Um, and it's a globalist government that just sells us out to China on every front. This is a huge problem. It's going to become a huge problem in our quest for state sovereignty to push back against federal edicts when, in certain states— uh, two-thirds of the land is controlled by the feds. So that's going to be a whole fight, and we're going to have to grab that power back. But again, we're out of time. Uh, Dar, I thank you so much for joining us. Again, freeidaho.org, um, hashtag freeidaho, mass-burning events. It's going to be on Saturday, March 6th. Start one in your state. Um, we're going to be starting that with our own conaction.network um, teams if you want to sign up there. We have about 20 people signed up for Idaho. We are trying to get a team leader, a team off the ground there and other states close by. Um, Certainly lots more to talk about on the border as well. Tomorrow we're going to have a special guest on masks, um, a certified industrial hygienist talking about how there's zero efficacy, all pain, no gain. Till tomorrow, keep up the fight, stay informed, and God bless you all.